0: Today from the global lane, the Elon Musk Twitter
1: takeover, worldwide ramifications. What we really need is a marketplace of ideas and a marketplace of competition. And I think we're going to see with this that things are going to change pretty drastically in the tech world.
0: A praying football coach stands trial before the U.S. Supreme Court. The stakes for American liberty.
2: You don't check your right to religious freedom at the schoolhouse door. No matter where you are, those First Amendment rights still apply.
0: Passing on a legacy to their children? Shocking findings. Only 2% of professed Christian parents hold a biblical worldview. can't give what you don't have. So it really does amount to a crisis. Casting stones and filling empty pews post-pandemic. Drag me to church? And it's all right here on the Global Lane. So now that Twitter has accepted Elon Musk's stock buyout plan, what is the next move for the world's richest man? Will Musk's free speech, free market approach pressure other big tech social media platforms into following his lead? Well, joining us to share his thoughts on what this may mean is Eric Peterson. He's director of the Center for Technology and Innovation at the Pelican Institute, a free market think tank out of Louisiana. Eric, thanks so much for joining us today. So what's the next move coming from Elon Musk? Uh, Unfettered free speech on Twitter, or do you expect some restrictions?
1: Uh, I don't know that anybody knows exactly what Elon Musk's next move is, uh, maybe even including Elon Musk. Um, But I I definitely think what you're going to start seeing from Twitter is perhaps a rethinking of both their business model and their content moderation policies. Twitter has been stagnant for quite some time, not adding new users, not adding new revenue, um, which is probably one of the reasons that people decided to uh, take Musk's offer. But Uh, You know, from from all the tweets that he's been sending out, uh, I certainly think we're going to see a change in Twitter from their content moderation policies, which have uh, shifted drastically from being the uh, free speech wing of the free speech party when uh, Twitter was founded um, over a decade ago.
0: Yes, a lot of people think it's just all about free speech, but I I think Musk actually uh, wants to make some money and turn things around for Twitter. So many people expect smooth sailing for Musk and Twitter, yet I saw a report about a proposed law in Great Britain that would require social media companies to censor content that the government deems to be harmful. Your thoughts on that? How might that foil Musk's plans for Twitter in England?
1: Yeah, I think it's one of the, the big questions that we have around all these big social media platforms that are operating in, in lots of different countries. Because um, America is, sec- is exceptional when it comes to its First Amendment and its free speech principles. Uh, you know, the the European Union has been uh, making some threats towards Twitter as well that uh, perhaps they won't allow them if they don't change their content moderation policies. So uh, it's something that Elon Musk uh, is going to have to deal with, and um, you know, it'd be interesting to see if he knew uh, quite what he got himself into because uh, when he bought uh, Twitter.
0: Well, let's expand on that a little bit, because I know many of the people controlling the levers of power around the world don't like speech that challenges their narratives or their agendas. It, It seems they're doing all they can to stop this free speech movement. So, we could see people in many countries prevented from accessing Twitter, as you mentioned, the EU. So how likely is it that our other governments beyond the EU may follow Britain's lead, place Chinese communist like restrictions on speech? How about elsewhere?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a good question, right? Um, I mean, obviously, right, these services aren't uh, available in China, right? One of the, the largest markets because of the free speech um, you know, sort of implications of them. Uh, you know, we're, we're entering a time in technology where it, it's a good question of whether the EU can even take down Twitter or stop it from being downloaded. Uh, you know, you see apps like Telegram, right, which are very popular and being used in Ukraine and Russia right now to um, spread a lot of information that governments might not want people to see. So I, I think we're definitely coming to an inflection point when it comes to government's ability to control speech. And I think that's one of the reasons that Musk bought Twitter. I think he, you know, believes that government should um, take a really light touch to any sort of content moderation or free speech restrictions. And I think he's going to continue to fight um, across the world on those principles.
0: Well, let's get into politics a little bit, because we know the big tech companies have funneled hundreds of thousands of dollars to Democrats in this country in hopes of influencing law and policy. They also restricted news about Hunter Biden's laptop just before the 2020 presidential election. Must calls that incredibly inappropriate media research poll found that I think about 17 percent of Biden voters said they'd not have voted for him if they had known more about key issues that went unreported or censored. So how might Musk have an impact on the dissemination of information and news coming into the upcoming 2022 midterm and the 2024 general elections?
1: Yeah, I would say right when these social media platforms started, they, they had a much wider breadth of what people were allowed to post on them. And Um, As the companies sort of matured and they were brought in uh, for congressional hearings, I think a lot of the political pressure on them has got them acting much more like um, traditional media companies, right? That, you know, Facebook and Twitter weren't weren't the only people that weren't reporting on that story. Uh, But I think somebody like Musk, uh, who has sort of a heterodox opinion from even a lot of those people in Silicon Valley, um, will sort of show an alternative model. Um, where perhaps that not all the uh, big tech companies are in line when it comes to what's allowed on their platform and, uh, you know, who they support politically or um, just how their companies run.
0: And quickly, Eric, what role should the U.S. government take in this battle? What should our Congress and president do?
1: I I think this is a great example of showing that a lot of the ideas that have been uh, thrown around for reigning in big tech uh, would have been a, a big mistake. So many people have been arguing for things like Section 230 reform. And I think um, had Congress acted on some of those ideas that, um, you know, Twitter might not become the open place that it is today. What we really need is a marketplace of ideas and a marketplace in competition. And I think we're going to see with this that things are going to change pretty drastically in the tech world like they have for the last 20 years.
0: Okay, free speech and free markets. Eric Peterson director of the Center for Technology and Innovation at the Pelican Institute. Thank you, Eric, for sharing your time and insights. We appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: On the home front, the U.S. Supreme Court this week heard arguments in a landmark case that may likely have long-lasting implications for religious freedom in American public life. High school football coach Joe Kennedy was fired from his job in Bremerton, Washington for praying on the 50-yard line at the conclusion of each game.
1: I just want to be able to practice my faith after a football game. Nobody should have to be fired or worried about their job if they show any signs of faith.
0: Here to discuss this important religious freedom case is political commentator and education policy strategist, Angela Morabito. Ms. Morabito is a former press secretary of the U.S. Department of Education. Angela, it's it's good to talk to you again. So this is a case that isn't really getting a lot of attention. What's at stake here, not only for Coach Kennedy, but also for America?
2: Well, it's great to see you, Gary. And this could and should be a watershed moment for religious freedom in American schools. Uh, Coach Kennedy liked to pray at the 50-yard line after football games. And sometimes students noticed what he was doing and said, hey, can I join in? He said, it's a free country. So they did. Some of them decided to kneel and pray with him. Others didn't. But the school district took notice and he ended up losing his job because they said that he was appearing to endorse a religion, that he uh, was was even coercing players to pray. Now. That's not true, and it's kind of astounding that this case ever reached the Supreme Court. But the Defense of Freedom Institute has filed an amicus brief saying that this coach was well within his First Amendment rights to pray, and we're very optimistic that the court will see this cut-and-dry case for what it is and rule in Coach Kennedy's favor.
0: The argument against Coach Kennedy, of course, is that his public expression of faith when he prayed alone at the 50-yard line after the games actually pressured members of the football team to join him. Now, Justice Elena Kagan expressed concern the players could feel coerced into participating. Uh, The Establishment Clause, of course, of the U.S. Constitution prohibits governments from sponsoring prayer. So am I missing something here, Angela? Did the school district or Coach Kennedy actually coerce or require those students to pray? Was their status on the team or their grades affected if they didn't?
2: not at all this was not the pray to play scheme that uh, the uh, opposite side of the story is claiming that it is uh, in fact plenty of the the players and the athletes didn't even really notice it was happening there were you know instances where they were chanting the fight song or walking through the stands after a game this started off as one man who just wanted to to, to bow his head and then thank god for for uh, the game or a wonderful day or you know he's spoken at length about his connection to his faith this started off as a one-man event, totally personal, but people took notice, wanted to join in. There's no coercion in, in any of that. Now, ironically, the school district actually tried to coerce Coach Kennedy into hiding his faith. They uh, even suggested that he go pray in a janitor's closet after the games. And if, if, if what he's doing is coercion, then so is bowing your head to pray before you have lunch in the school cafeteria. It's a really absurd premise.
0: And two members of the Supreme Court suggested that a ruling against the coach could have serious implications. Justice Samuel Alito asked whether a school employee could then be punished for carrying a Ukrainian flag on school property. And then Justice Brett Kavanaugh questioned whether the school could actually fire someone for making the sign of the cross before a game. Your thoughts on that?
2: Uh, those are extremely valid questions, and it shows you uh, just how uh, just how wide-ranging ram- the ramifications of this decision will be. This should be a no-brainer that you don't check your right to religious freedom at the schoolhouse door. No matter where you are, those First Amendment rights still apply. That is at the core of this case, and it's what the Defense of Freedom Institute is saying in our amicus brief, that This should be a really simple thing. People are allowed to express themselves in school, no matter really what that expression looks like. Coach Kennedy clearly wasn't harming anyone. And displays of faith have generally been accepted in public schools, maybe not culturally, but legally. You do have the right to pray, even if you're in a public school.
0: And, Angela, here's how Coach Kennedy's lawyer summed it up. What Coach was doing
3: was just simply taking 15 to 30 seconds on a knee by himself at the 50-yard line, And the First Amendment clearly protects that kind of activity. And if it doesn't, then the promise of the First Amendment is all but dead.
0: So your prediction here, Angela, which way do you think this will go? I'm kind of guessing here that based on some recent religious freedom rulings, the majority of the justices are likely to side with Coach Kennedy. What do you think?
2: I certainly hope that's the case, and I think he stands a great chance, because when you look at the facts of this case, you see quite clearly that this was one man exercising his religious freedom. Because a few people decided to join him, that doesn't change the core of this issue, that religious freedom still applies in American public schools. I'm hopeful that the justices will see it the same way, and I, I believe the facts support it.
0: Okay, First Amendment all the way. Angela Morabito, thank you for being with us, Angela. Thank you. Thank you. A recent survey from the Cultural Research Center found a staggering disparity between the number of parents who claim to be Christian and those who actually hold a biblical worldview. 67% claim to be Christian, but only 2% hold a biblical worldview. Well, joining us with more on this and what can be done about it, is veteran Christian pollster George Barna. Mr. Barna is director of research and co-founder of the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. George, did those findings shock you and why is this happening?
3: It didn't really shock me because we've been studying worldview in America for more than 30 years. And so we've seen the pattern. I think what's really alarming though is how low the numbers are getting in terms of incidents of parents with a biblical worldview. The reason it matters, of course, is because a person's worldview develops between 15 to 18 months of age and 13 years of age. So it's those early years in a person's life where because a worldview is essentially your decision-making filter, every decision you make in life goes through that filter. So you need to have a worldview to get by in life Uh, What we find is that parents who biblically are called to be the primary shapers of the worldview in their children's life are not really doing the job. And even worse than that, we know now from the research that 98 out of 100 parents of children who are under the age of 13 can't do the job of handing over a biblical worldview because they themselves don't have one, can't give what you don't have.
0: So it really does amount to a crisis. Well George how did this happen? I mean was it a gradual thing or a sudden thing and and why did it happen?
3: Well it's been happening consistently for at least the last 40 years which is as long as I've been studying it but we've seen that the momentum behind people leaving a biblical worldview or not developing a biblical worldview has really ramped up in the last 10 to 12 years. There have been a lot of cultural changes that have uh, encouraged people to take on other worldviews. There has been a shift in what influences the way that people in America think, where now we know that the arts and entertainment media and the news and information media are the greatest shapers of the way that people think. And so even when we talk about the development of a worldview, those are the two factors that have the greatest impact on that development process. And then of course, at the same time, you've got churches that have really focused on things other than worldview development and other than raising up children to be godly individuals. So you put all that together and that's why we find ourselves where
0: we are. Not not to mention public schools, I'm sure. And I know you also found that this is having a devastating effect on preteen children, especially. Explain that.
3: Well, it is. I mean, what happens is because you have to develop a worldview, no matter which one you possess, whether it's going to be Marxism, postmodernism, secular humanism, biblical worldview, any of the many worldviews that are at your disposal, children are trying to figure out what worldview makes the most sense for me as an individual. And one of the things that they do is they turn to their parents for clues and cues about what's the best worldview. But what we discovered is that as they're listening to and observing their parents, they're seeing a contradiction between what parents say and what parents do. And the bottom line on that is that it's indicated to children, well, you know what, my parents claim to be Christian. They claim they're living a Christian life, but they don't do what they say the Bible teaches or the church teaches or Jesus is all about. And therefore, I come to conclude that Christianity isn't real. It's not reliable. It's full of conflicts. So I'm gonna have to look elsewhere for a worldview. And that's why it's so easy for movies and television shows and music and video games, all the different media to start bringing those alternative worldviews into the presence of children. And because those are more coherent and cohesive, children are more likely to buy into that and leave their parents behind.
0: So it's the, uh, you know, don't do what uh, I do, do what I say. I mean, how often did we hear that as kids? So are pastors and church members then to blame for all of this? Uh, you you went over some of it, but, I mean, doesn't the blame really come on the parents, the pastors, the churches? Uh, the pandemic's over. Still a lot of empty pews in churches now.
3: Yeah, and frankly, all of this has nothing to do with the pandemic. This has been a a pattern that's been in place for a while. And so when we recognize that biblically parents have the primary responsibility for developing the worldview of their children, and churches have the primary responsibility for developing uh, and supporting parents in what they're doing as parents in trying to raise children with a biblical worldview, both of them have failed at that task.
0: So then what do we do about it, George?
3: Well, we have to have, I believe, both a long-term and a short-term plan. The short-term plan is we've got to get parents doing the best that they can as quickly as possible to raise up today's young children to have a biblical worldview. Parents don't have that worldview, but that means then that at the same time, churches are going to have to rush in and prioritize worldview development, trying to do some patching up of the worldview of today's parents but also them prioritizing what they're doing with the children who wind up going to church. The longer-term strategy is to recognize it's all about children. Many of the leaders around the world for decades and decades and decades have said, give me children until they're seven, until they're eight, till they're nine, and I can indoctrinate them into our way of seeing the world and make them the kind of people we want them to be. It's time that the church learns that lesson as well.
0: Okay, George Barney, you certainly move us to self-reflection and to prayer. Thank you for providing those insights. We appreciate it. Thank you, Gary. So you say you've had enough. You saw that teacher performing in drag for high school students in Wisconsin. Well, get ready for more woke craziness, this time in a church. Trinity Lutheran Church of Greenville, South Carolina, announces Drag Me to Church, featuring Lady Duche. Keep in mind, it's not replacing a regular Sunday service in the sanctuary. It's an event scheduled for a Thursday evening in the church gym. So I wonder if they'll open the drag performance with prayer. The Trinity Church Facebook page promises that you'll be endlessly entertained as the Lady Duche leads us through her unique style of worship, which includes as many laughs as it does amens. The announcement says the drag show is about church, faith, and God's inclusive love. Yes, folks, churches need to be inclusive. People from all walks of life, rich, poor, prostitutes, drunkards, homosexuals, should be welcomed in. They need to be places where the gospel and Jesus changes their lives, not where they change the church to embrace worldly ways. Hebrews 13.8 tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's unchangeable. He never bends with a culture. No one ever changes Jesus or the life lessons he has given us, They remain forever. Folks, if this is how churches are hoping to fill their pews after the pandemic, they're walking down the wrong path. Yes, God loves everyone, including drag queens, but he wants us to come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's not about being entertained by a drag queen or anyone else. Churches should be holy temples, a place where we bring honor and glory to him, not to us. How does a man dress like a woman strutting his stuff in a church Bring glory to God. Isn't it really a slap in His face? It's saying, God, you may be the creator of the universe, but when you created me, you made a mistake. I really feel like a woman. I'm not a man. It's saying, I know better than God. So I'm creating myself in the image that I have for myself, not in His image or what God intends for me. Remember, Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers who conducted business in the temple. So how do you think he feels about drag shows and church? Isn't it disrespecting his temple? Yes, Jesus did hang out with tax collectors and prostitutes, not because he approved of their actions, but because he wanted to build them up and transform their lives, show them the way, the truth, the life. He never condoned their sin. In fact, when the Pharisees were ready to stone a woman caught in adultery, Jesus said, let those without sin cast the first stone. We Christians should never cast stones at drag queens or anyone else. We, too, are sinners. But also, as followers of Jesus, we try to be like Him. And that means showing compassion for people, but also pointing the way to godliness in the church. So like Jesus, who told the woman He did not condemn her for adultery, we need to remind Trinity Lutheran to go and sin no more. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.